When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This week on Wealth Track, Guggenheim Scott Minard oversees six five-star rated bond funds. He'll tell us how and why he is getting defensive in all of them. That's next on Consuelo Mack Wealth Track. New York Life, along with Mainstay's family of mutual funds, offers investment and retirement solutions so you can help your clients keep good going. Additional funding provided by Thornburg Investment Management, Active Management, Flexible Perspective. Ku and Patricia Ewan through the Ewan Foundation, committed to bridging cultural differences. Rosalind P. Walter and the Fairholm Foundation. Hello and welcome to this edition of Wealth Track. I'm Consuelo Mack. Is the great expansion soon to become the great unwinding? The recent unanimous decision by Federal Reserve officials to start reducing the size of its bond holdings would indicate it. This chart illustrates the staggering expansion of the Fed's balance sheet, up an estimated 500 percent to $4.5 trillion since the financial crisis. The Fed's massive purchases of Treasury bonds and mortgage-backed securities were designed to lower interest rates and thus borrowing costs for businesses, homeowners and consumers alike. The chart also shows the Fed's estimated unwinding of those purchases. They are expected to be very gradual, initially allowing only $10 billion a month of the bonds to mature without replacing them, a pace to be accelerated later. The Fed is the first among the major central banks of developed countries to start withdrawing from this unprecedented monetary experiment. The European Central Bank and the Bank of Japan continue to buy bonds to keep their interest rates low in an effort to encourage economic growth. Well, this week's guest is a successful fixed income manager who is tracking these developments with interest and some concern. He is Scott Minard, co-founder of Guggenheim Partners, its global chief investment officer and chairman of Guggenheim Investments, where he oversees $290 billion of assets, two-thirds of which are in fixed income securities. Included in that mix are six taxable bond funds. All are rated five-star by Morningstar. He is a portfolio manager on all but one. All carry the Guggenheim name. They are the flagship total return, macro opportunities, floating rate strategies, limited duration, high yield, and investment-grade bond. Guggenheim has been in the news lately about alleged management discord, which the firm vehemently denies, and what it calls a routine SEC examination for a registered investment advisor, which it says is in the final stages. For Minard, it appears to be business as usual. In a recent report on the outlook for fixed income, he told clients, we have to remind ourselves that we are living in a highly unusual time. I asked him to describe how unusual it is. Well, we're living in an unprecedented age. I mean, never in the history of the world have we had a series of central banks around the world essentially propping up global economies by printing money. 
Right. And so, you know, we don't have an analog to look at. Uh, it's not like we can talk about, you know, our traditional business cycle. And so how, you know, how does this all play out, right? Uh, and, you know, the, the, as I like to tell people, uh, the history of money is checkered. Uh, you know, kings were known for shaving the edges of coins and, uh, you know, building palaces or fighting wars and, and debasing their currency, and, and that ultimately was inflationary. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the history of paper money is abysmal. There's never been a paper money regime that ultimately doesn't fall into a period of hyperinflation. Now, today, I'm not predicting hyperinflation, yeah. but policymakers are going to be you know, really challenged to figure out you know, how are they going to play this out at the end. And I think what they want to do is they want to follow the, tra the traditional path which is you know, let employment rise, let wages rise, let inflation start to take off a little bit, and then clamp down on money growth. And uh, you know, that will ultimately lead to a recession. But you know, when you look at where we are today with interest rates as low as they are, uh, the average recession has ended where, with the Fed ultimately having to reduce rates by five percentage points. It's unlikely that given how low inflation is now that we're going rates are going to get that high. Right. And so we're likely to find ourselves beginning a recession when rates are maybe two and a half or three percent. And then the Fed will have to do what it traditionally does, which is inject money in the system, lower interest rates. And we've never had to do this before with rates this low. Right. So it's, it's going to be uh, an interesting and challenging road ahead. Uh, but, uh, you know, the, the key right now for investors is trying to figure out, you know, what does that road ahead look like between where we are today and when the Fed has to, to clamp down on money growth and, and probably induce a recession. And, and that's where I've been really focused. That's what, two years out, I don't know, 18 months out. So, it, yeah, hi right? You know, history would tell us that it's probably about two years away. Okay. Unless the Fed finds itself in the mode of... Uh, having to abort its current uh, tightening cycle of raising rates. Right. We, we had that in 1987, and then, of course, we got the stock market crash and, and what followed. And then we had it again in, uh, in the Asian crisis in the late 90s, and, of course, that led to the Internet bubble. So, you know, if we stay the course, I think we will have a recession by late, 19, uh, late 2019, maybe early 2020. But uh, if the Fed has to abort... Uh, and that could be for any number of reasons. It could be because of uh, of what's going on in Korea. Right. But but I'm acting as if we're going to have a recession in another two or two and a half years, and and then trying to plan accordingly. Now you're in a committee that advises the New York Fed. So what's your advice to the New York Fed? What what are you telling them that they should be doing? Well, I I think that they that they need to let the economy run hot. Okay. Uh, that we need to see inflation above 2% for some period of time, that, that they have to do that so that we can move far enough away from what we've euphemistically called the zero bound, right, to get rates high enough right. so that when we get to the next recession, uh, we don't find ourselves back at the zero bound and, and again in the exercise of printing money and quantitative easing. Uh, I, I think the political dynamic in Washington right now isn't very favorable for another monetary experiment. And so uh, I think just from the standpoint of, of their own long-term credibility, that they would probably be better off to, to allow the economy to run hot, 
uh, and, and, and let inflation rise a little bit further than they think they should uh, so that we can avoid having to go through some of this more unorthodox policy that we've had to live with for the last decade. Right. So you're always looking ahead, but of course I'm looking at what's happening right now in front of my nose. So let me quote you again. And this is in the, a, a report to clients that you wrote um, about fixed income to clients that your worry is that 18 months from now, if not sooner, we will look back at this period and be amazed at how obvious it was that we were not being compensated enough to take on the risk that we are being offered at today's prices. So how risky is the bond or the fixed income markets right well, now? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. The perspective, I think, is to say um, it take uh, high-yield bonds. It's a good example. You know, given where high-yield bonds are currently trading and the yields that are being offered, if you take the historical default experience over a decade mm -hmm. uh, and adjust those returns or those yields for the expected defaults, you would actually get a return that is about the same as the 10-year Treasury note if you just really? bought it and held it. Right. Wow, that's stunning. It is stunning. And you think about that. That low. That low. Right. And if you think about that, and you're, an, you're a long-term investor, and you say, I want to t invest my money for the next 10 years, you know, would you say that you would want to live through all the volatility and noise of holding high-yield bonds for the next decade and getting something like a 2% return where you could just go buy a 10-year treasury and get a 2% return? And I'm not arguing that a 2% return is that attractive, but it's, it's, it's these kind of crazy trade-offs that investors are being asked to make. Right. Because when you look at high-yield bond issuance or you look at leverage loan issuance, uh, we're, we're running at records. Mm -hmm. And you look at corporate bonds, and we're, we're going to have another record year in corporate bonds. And so all this credit risk that's getting created by all the new issuance of these bonds uh, and on a risk-adjusted basis, it doesn't really make a lot of rational sense because you're not being paid a premium to take on the risk relative to taking on a risk-free asset like a U.S. Treasury security. When you were in WealthTrack last, which was in April of 2016, you actually, the, the investments that you were recommending <coughs> at that time were, were high, you know, higher risk, were high-yield bonds, right. and I think bank loans, loan exposure, asset-backed security. You're, you're, you've really changed your tune. You, right. you, 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 your funds did extremely well investing that way, but now you're, you've gotten much more defensive. So tell us what you're doing. Clearly, we've moved a lot more toward U.S. Treasuries, uh, and, and we're doing a lot of uh, U.S. Uh, uh, agency-backed securities, mm -hmm. uh, commercial mortgage-backed securities that are guaranteed or wrapped by the agencies are, are exceptionally attractive. Uh, so hi higher quality, I'm hearing safety, higher quality. Right, higher right. quality. Uh, you know, the, uh, um, you know I, I often joke that, uh, you know, and, and use the Baron von Rothschild line, which is when asked the secret of his great wealth, he said it, he sold early, right? And so... Which is know. such an interesting... It's don't let your profits run. Don't be afraid to sell early in anticipation of whatever you think is going to happen. That's right. Right. And, and the problem with this strategy is valuation, right? Is valuation is, is, is a great thing for long-term investors, but it's a short it's a short term timing tool. It's very bad, you know. As I, I often joke that markets that get overvalued and become more overvalued are called bull markets, and uh, so investors, you know, get frustrated when they they say, well, you know, I sold my equity portfolio or I sold my high yield bonds, and then they read the next quarter 
how much they could have made if they right. just stayed in one more quarter. And so uh, that that is a you know a common behavioral thing in investors that uh, they, they feel that they've missed out on the opportunity. But you know, disciplined investors have to understand that valuation in the long run is what drives returns, and you just have to be willing to to say, yeah, I might I might miss the next five percent or ten percent of upside, um, but uh, you know, am I am I worried about next quarter's returns or am I worried about what my returns look like for the next decade? In this short-term oriented environment, and I know you worked with Daniel Kahneman, the Nobel <coughs> Prize winner the uh, behavioral psychologist, um, and, and, and you've, you've applied a lot of his disciplines, behavioral finance, to, to your disciplines at Guggenheim. In, in this short-term oriented environment, should you be adjusting your time frames more to the current uh, time frames that, that we're seeing among investors in right. the markets? Well, it, it's, it's an interesting challenge from where I sit, because yeah. when you underperform you know, for a quarter or two, Investors have gotten themselves conditioned by watching, you know, the news media yes. like CNBC, and not to criticize them, they're a great network, right. but you know they're, they're seeing all these headlines and news stories, and so uh, the idea that they're missing out—it's a very difficult behavioral issue to, to deal fight, with. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you know uh, what what uh, my approach typically is is to say, you know, we're turning a big ship, you know, let's if we think things are overvalued or. You know, getting overvalued, it's probably time to start reducing the position and then do it over a series of months or quarters and, and not make a lot of short-term knee-jerk mm-hmm. trades. And I think that would line up with Danny Kahneman's view of the world, is that you know, investors tend to be you know, too reactive. Uh, and so uh, you, know, you can't time all these things perfectly. And so that's the way we manage our portfolios, is we just Say, you know, it's funny. We were just—you just mentioned a year and a half ago how bullish I was on high yield. Right. Uh, you know, we started to get more conservative. You know, toward the end of last year, early this year, and so, you know, it's a, it's a, a slow evolution, and uh, you know, you hope you get the pacing of it right. But uh, you know, it's uh, it's it's hard as an investor to stay disciplined like that. Because, uh, you know, there's the old adage, which your viewers are going to know, you know, there are bulls, bears, and pigs, right? And <laughs> bulls make money, bears make money, but pigs get slaughtered. Right. And people who are just trying to hold on for another quarter's returns often come up and, and regret that kind of investment philosophy. Another interesting prediction that you've made is that you expect that the 10-year treasury will be under 2%. I'm not sure if you put a time frame on it or not. A lot of investors inherently have this bias from where we've come from, that you know, somehow we think normal interest rates are like 5%, right? And uh, the reality is that, uh, you know, as we talked about earlier, that wasn't normal for the 1950s or even right. in the early 1960s. And so uh, a lot of people think that we're, you know, we're, we're suddenly going to see rates much higher or this or that. Uh, and the reality is that now we're, we, we're going to, you know, 2% where we are today, 2 and a quarter percent in the 10-year note is, is pretty much a fulcrum point. And, you know, if, if things get heated up, we should move closer to three. When the economy slows down, we'll go under two. And so, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's the idea that, uh, that a 1% 10-year note is something that we aren't going to experience again, uh, I think is, is a very unlikely outcome for investors. And investors should protect themselves. You know, one of the themes... Uh, that you see playing out in our portfolios is even though we believe the Federal Reserve is committed to increasing rates, 
history shows us that as they raise short-term rates, long-term rates tend to lag. Right. And you actually have, uh, at the end of a cycle, when the yield curve uh, is flat, that is the short-term rate and the 10-year note is the same yield, uh, that, that uh, after that period, long-term rates tend to fall in anticipation of short-term rates coming down. And so it's, it's, I think, imprudent for investors to say, you know, okay, let me sell all my long-dated bonds. You know, they should have something in their portfolio, but they should also construct the portfolio in a way that, that takes advantage of short-term rates coming up by having a significant amount of floating rate assets and in their portfolio, but, but not to abandon the long end of the yield curve. And so in 18 or 19 months, you think we are going to have a recession, and therefore you're, you're adjusting your portfolios gradually towards that end. Talk to us about how you, how you are adjusting them now, and, and if we should, as individual investors, should we be doing the same thing? Well, it, I mean, as I mentioned earlier, one of the things that we've done, because you know, we do think we're in the late stages of a, the business cycle, as I, I caught you right. know, the seventh inning, uh, and the, uh, so you know, it's time to start moving toward the exits. Uh, if you go to Dodger Stadium, usually around the eighth inning, you want to start leaving because it gets awfully crowded leaving in the parking lot. So I think that um, you know, the first thing is to start considering upgrading the credit quality of your mm -hmm. portfolio, which we've discussed. Yep. Um, the second thing is to, to have a significant portion of the portfolio in very short dated or floating rate assets. And that would include things like uh, collateralized loan obligations, CLOs, which are floating rate in nature, reset on a monthly or a quarterly basis. Those are very attractive. Uh, you know, there are also floating rate mortgage products uh, that, that offer you incremental yield. Like, for instance, today you can, you can find a, a high-grade, high-quality floating rate asset for around 3%. So you're not really giving up any current yield relative to being... Uh, you know, owning a long-term treasury security. Right. And then at the other end of the yield curve, or at the longer end, you know, we're, we're focused on buying, you know, things like uh, U.S. Treasury strips, mm -hmm. uh, very high-quality uh, uh, muni products. Uh, you know, municipal bonds are very cheap relative mm -hmm. to history. So, you know, they make, make a sense even if you can't take advantage of the tax exemption. Uh, so that's, uh, you know, a, a, a balanced portfolio needs to have a mix of both short-term uh, assets and long-duration assets to protect you in the event that the 1% 10-year note or the 1% the treasury rate is closer than I would anticipate today. You've got six, uh, six five-star rated bond funds, uh, and, you know, you never want to pick your favorite child, but if, if you were to to look at over a time horizon of over the next 12 months, for instance, which one do you think is going to perform the best? I, I think the limited duration fund is the place to be. Uh -huh. uh, you know, the total return bond fund has done very well, has uh, outperformed the limited duration fund. But, you know, as, as rates do continue to rise, the limited duration fund will, will protect you from uh, that and it preserve capital. You have a background in risk management. Let me ask you about some of the risks that you are seeing. Yeah, I'm, I'm very concerned about the, the policy risks in terms of tax reform, immigration. Um, you know, the, these uh, are highly charged issues in our country. Uh, you know, for instance, uh, in the long run, even in the short run, uh, the immigration question uh, is going to be one of the defining issues for us in terms of our growth potential. Our workforce 
is not growing fast enough to accommodate three or even four percent growth as the administration has has you know object their right. objective. Uh, and so, you know, if you go to a country like Australia, which has a very uh, uh, rational immigration policy that qualifies immigrants to come into the country, uh, they've been able to grow the size of their workforce in such a way that it's kept them from having a recession for over 24 years. And, uh, and they, they qualify the people based on needs. Uh, mm -hmm. On job needs. Mm -hmm. On job needs and the credentials of the people coming in. Mm -hmm. As far as tax reform is concerned, would it be business tax reform or personal tax reform? What would be, what would be the priority? I think the highest priority should be business tax reform. Uh, you know, there's a need for us. We have one of the highest corporate tax rates in the world. There's a need for us to be more competitive uh, as a place to, to manufacture and to, to, for business to be located in general. Uh, I think we also need to figure out a way to come up with a rational tax system which encourages the repatriation of capital into the United States. Uh, if the you know, over trillion dollars worth of cash which is sitting on balance sheets and corp corporations around the world came home, uh, that in and of itself would you know, give a big lift to equity prices. Uh, it would uh, be an interesting source of funds for uh, infrastructure mm -hmm. and other things that, that we desperately need to remain competitive in the world. Geopolitical risk with North Korea lobbying rockets over Japan, for instance. How much uh, attention are you paying to those and, and what difference does it make in how you're managing portfolios? Well, it, the, the Korean tensions are uh, a frightening thing for me. Um, and it really does make me pause and say, you know, do I need to de-risk further? You know, should I be reducing the size of our equity portfolios and allocation there? Um, and and uh, I think the likelihood that we're going to have uh, some sort of a, a military conflict, possibly nuclear, uh, is, you know, rising. Uh, I would say prospects are at least 20% at this point. And, um, wow, that's... That's real. That's real. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's it's not the likely outcome, but it's it's a very very real outcome. Right. And uh, it's probably time for people to, you know, factor that into their risk calculation as we're trying to. Uh, probably should start increasing their allocation to things like gold and precious metals if they don't have any. Uh, you know, I think that at this point, uh, an allocation of about five percent of a portfolio to precious metals makes sense. Your normal range, you, you told me at one point, was 2 to 5%. That's so, right. So you're at the high end of your normal allocation to precious metals exactly. to gold. Mm -hmm. And I think that uh, you know, we are, um, uh, in times of uncertainty, that does well. And uh, you know, hopefully, uh, it doesn't lead to something worse that would be a global bear market. What would be your one investment for a long-term diversified portfolio? And I will add, that in April of 2016 that you recommended an ETF uh, investing in Brazilian stocks and it's done, it was up like almost 50%. What's your view now of, of that ETF right. and what would your new one be? Right, well I would definitely, I would continue to be long Brazil. Brazil, you would? And I would add her, its sister Chile next door which probably will perform even better which is ECH. But to get out of uh, the emerging markets, Bank of America, um, you know, the, uh, uh, as interest rates rise, uh, Bank of America has a very, very large uh, fixed rate deposit base. And so as interest rates go up, the earnings will go up, 
Uh, it's still trading well below the value it was at back in 2007. Uh, and uh, you know pays a, a pretty handsome dividend and is growing earnings. So, you know, I'll, I'll, uh, if you're if you don't have the stomach for the emerging markets, uh, the Bank of America probably is a great pick. We'll leave it there, Scott Miner. Thank you very much for being with us on Wealth Track once again. Thank you, Consuela. At the close of every wealth track, we try to give you one suggestion to help you build and protect your wealth over the long term. This week's action point is one we have recommended many times before, but it bears repeating. It is make sure you have a safe haven asset in your portfolio. Minard mentioned gold. It is a logical choice since it is universally recognized and traded as one. His recommended gold limit is 5% of a portfolio. Other WealthTrack guests, such as First Eagle Jean-Marie Villard, traditionally hold up to 10%. Buying the precious metal itself is a hassle. A good alternative is buying a gold ETF. The oldest and largest gold ETF is Spider Gold Shares, symbol GLD, or its close relative, iShares Gold Trust, symbol IAU. They give you tradable ownership shares of gold bullion without having to take possession. Next week, we will sit down with retirement experts Kimberly Langford and Christopher Blunt to discuss managing the increasing costs of retirement, especially health care expenses. On our website's extra feature this week, Scott Miner discusses his early retirement from Wall Street years ago and what brought him back. Please feel free to reach out to us on Facebook and Twitter about this week's program or any other topic you care about. Thank you so much for watching. Have a great weekend and make the week ahead a profitable and a productive one.